I'd like to take you on an adventure today. It's the adventure all heroes and heroines must take in every story you've ever heard and held dear. It's one that I hope will show us how we can persevere in our own lives. As it says in Hebrews 12, how we can lay aside every weight that holds us down and run with endurance the race that is set before us. One of my roles here at Cornerstone is to create a musical or a play or a presentation that tells the gospel in a creative way. It's one of the things I love doing the most. There's a unique power and potential in stories. Aside from being entertaining, we can learn from stories, things we might not have gleaned otherwise. Stories have a unique way of communicating to a place in our hearts that might otherwise have gone unawakened. We can also identify or see ourselves in the stories we hear, and we can be inspired by them, moved to improve aspects of our own humanity. But more than this, I believe, we can find God in our stories, if we listen close enough. J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors and the writer of The Lord of the Rings, was a devoted Christ follower, and he had this to say about stories. We have come from God, and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Our myths may be misguided, but they steer however shakily towards the true harbour. Jesus himself knew the power and effect of telling stories. In Matthew chapter 13, it says that all Jesus did that day was tell stories. A long storytelling afternoon. His storytelling fulfilled the prophecy, I will open my mouth and will tell stories. I will bring out into the open things hidden since the world's first day. Going back to Tolkien, he also says this, the chief purpose of life for any one of us is to increase according to our capacity our knowledge of God by all the means we have and to be moved by it to praise and thanks. And this is why I love stories so much. They are a window into God's creative nature and they can point us towards him in a way unlike any other experience can. And so I'd like to take what I've learned from my years of studying film and creating plays and musicals for Cornerstone and explore today the art of storytelling. Now don't worry, this is not going to be a three-hour screenwriting lecture or a seminar on the history of stories. I just want to give a broad overview of what makes a story a story in order to provide us with a launching point. From there, I'd like us to look at a passage in the Bible through a story structure lens to see if we can glean any new insights from it. And then ultimately, I'd like to make some correlations about how the scripture passage and a lens of narrative structure can inform us about how God is working within the grand arc and specific story points of our own lives. Every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, most stories follow a three-act structure, the beginning or act one, the middle, which is usually the longest, or act two, and the end, which is act three. 
Now this goes all the way back to what the Greek philosopher and playwright Aristotle proposed in 335 BC. And there have been multiple iterations of this 3x structure since then with many detailed adaptations and nuances added to it. And we're not going to go into all those details today. What I do want to focus on are the key elements of each act. Now remember, I'm doing all of this to set up a Bible passage and a framework through which to view our own lives. This will all have a point, I promise. In Act 1, we meet the hero or protagonist of the story. We get some exposition and learn who they are. Then what happens is an inciting incident, which is an event that causes the hero's world to change. Nemo gets lost and the rest of the film is spent trying to find him. Frodo is given the One Ring. The hero debates whether or not they will respond to this event and then how they will respond. And then they embark on the journey set before them, which begins Act 2. Marlin goes to find Nemo. Frodo takes the ring to Rivendell. In Act 2, the hero's journey continues. They make progress on their quest and start overcoming their obstacles. And this gets progressively more and more challenging up until the midpoint, in which the character has to decide to double down on their commitment. Or they have a shift in their approach. They have an aha moment to change tactics in order to achieve their goal because what they were doing beforehand is no longer working. Marlon and Dory make it to Sydney, but their journey is far from over. Frodo leaves his companions and the rest of the fellowship is broken. The hero then continues with the stakes getting higher and higher until we reach Act 3, which is the final conflict and climax and resolution of the hero saga. There's a final test, the climax, and this usually involves a victory or lesson learned, the resolution. Another word for all of this is the denouement, which is where all the narrative threads of the story that were hinted at from the beginning are tied up together. Nemo and Marlin are reunited. The One Ring is destroyed, Middle-earth is saved, and Frodo leaves for the Grey Havens. And that, in a nutshell, is how stories work. Now, I'd like to do a little experiment. I'd like to see how these story principles can sometimes be carried over to a Bible passage in order to glean some fresh insight from them. However, before we dive in, I do need to make it very clear that the Bible, while it has narrative accounts in it, is not, I think, meant to be studied solely from a framework of story structure. Much of it does fit into this model, but the Bible is ultimately a historical account of God, his people, and his redeeming love for those people. It contains genealogies, poetry, prophecies, as well as historical narratives. It is the word of God. It has life in it to this very day, and so it will never truly fit into any model of study that men or women can make. For the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Additionally, I believe that the Bible is God-breathed, by which I mean it is God-inspired, and he is the ultimate author of it. While it contains a lot of narrative accounts, it is by no means a work of fiction and should never be put in that same category. 
It is a true historical account and must be treated with the utmost respect and discernment. All I'm aiming to do in this next section of my sharing is to show that even the lives of some of the biblical figures can be viewed from a three-act story structure, as can all of our lives. And so, if we look at the life of Joseph, as Pastor Terry has been exploring these past seven weeks, here's how I think Joseph's life could fit into this three-act story model. The inciting incident is when Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers. They debate what to do with him until, the end of Act 1, Joseph is sold into slavery and this launches us into Act 2. The midpoint comes when Joseph is trapped and tricked by a part of his wife and ends up in jail. And finally, Act 3, our resolution is when Joseph is put in charge of the whole of Egypt and is reunited with his family. All his dream interpretations came true. There's another passage I'd like us to look at today. It's from the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 16, concerning Paul and Silas. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are up throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. In those days, if you were in charge of prisoners and they escaped, you were executed. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now there was so much 
to unpack in this passage. I don't have time today or even in the next few weeks to unpack it all, but what I want to look at is how this fits into the three-act story structure and go from there. So the inciting incident, I think, is when Paul and Silas meet the possessed slave girl. Things will never be the same for any of them after this encounter. Their worlds will forever be changed. The debate and the story continues as she follows them for days until Paul finally commands the demon to come out of her, thus launching us into Act 2. The masters of the slave girl, having realized the income was now lost, plot against Paul and Silas, complicating things. Paul and Silas are seized and taken to the authorities. Things get progressively worse as the whole crowd and all the officials strip them naked, beat them and flog them. The midpoint arrives, I think, as they're thrown into jail and their feet are fastened in stocks. Paul and Silas must now decide how they will respond to this unfortunate and terrible events. Will they double down their commitment or will they give up? They respond by double downing on their commitment to serving the Lord. And instead of complaining or negotiating, they sing hymns to God and pray. The final conflict and confrontation happens then when God sends an earthquake and all the prison doors and chains are opened and broken. The adventure of Paul and Silas then comes to a close in a denouement that is reminiscent of the beginning. In the same way that they were going to a place of prayer and were sharing the good news of Jesus, they now get to do this in the home of the jailer who comes to know God along with his whole household. So how can we take this scripture passage and the three-act story structure and apply it to our lives? This is where we've been getting to, the final movement of our time together. The first thing I'd like to point out is that heroes are usually ordinary people. They typically don't possess any special skills, but are thrust into the action and must develop these skills needed to have achieved their goal or overcome the obstacles thrown at them. Paul and Silas had no special skills in this passage. I mean, they had leadership and preaching gifts for sure as a whole. But ultimately, they were ordinary men who relied heavily on God and were ultimately used in mighty ways by him. So you might feel like you're not a hero, but guess what? In your story, you are. You're the protagonist. There can be no other protagonist in your story except you. You might feel like you have nothing special to offer or no real set of skills in the grand scheme of things. And you might feel that you don't have what it takes to overcome what life is throwing at you, but you do. If, like Paul and Silas and Joseph, you put your trust in God, he will give you the strength to overcome anything. Our journeys in Christ are never about how strong we are, but rather about how strong the Lord is. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. We mentioned earlier that inciting incidents are usually caused by external forces. Sometimes the events are from no fault of our own. We see this in the Acts 16 passage. Paul and Silas's morning started like any other morning, and they cast a demon out of a girl, bringing her new life. But now they were naked, bloody, and beaten in prison, all in a day's work. That is not fair, if ever I heard of fair. 
In these times, it can be easy to blame God and to give up and stay bitter because of the unfair and unjust circumstances. But what did Paul and Silas do? They didn't wallow in self-pity. They prayed and sang hymns of praise to God. It's not, I think, what I would do if I were in that situation. I'd probably mope for days and complain and grow bitter. And I'd probably still be sitting in that prison waiting for something to change instead of inviting God into it. Other times, however, the inciting incident in our story is directly an effect of something we did, whether for good or for bad. Maybe we've been the cause of pain in someone else's story or in our own, and we need a way to rectify this. There are also times when the inciting incident and all the subsequent trials and struggles of the story are all in internal, where we are both the protagonist and the antagonist, and we have to learn to overcome our own negative behaviors, attitudes, or perspectives and perceptions. These are often the stories I love the most, probably because I can relate to them the most. But whatever the case, and whatever the cause of your inciting incident, whether you're battling against yourself, whether you've made a bad decision and are on the road to despair, or whether you've been thrust unfairly into an unjust situation, you're there now, and it is not the end of your story. It is only the beginning. The Lord will see you through. He will bring hope and restoration before you reach the end. I'd also like to point out that our perspective is often changed by where we are on our story. Where are you in your story and how can you invite God into the picture? If you're at the very beginning of Act 1 and your inciting incident hasn't even happened yet, you might be happy that life is going so well. Give praise to God and ask for strength and knowledge to prepare for the hardships that will come because they will be headed your way at some point. Or maybe you're further down the road of Act 1, and you're not liking the way your story is playing out. Ask God for a fresh start, or for a new doorway to change the narrative as you head into Act 2. Maybe you've been on your journey for a while, and you're closing in now on the midpoint. How are you going to respond to what lies ahead of you? Will you double down and recommit to seeing the challenges through to the end? Ask God for strength, if so. Or are you coming off a string of defeats and you need to change how you've been approaching things? Ask God for the wisdom of fresh eyes. Maybe you're in Act 3 already and the denouement is drawing near. Just a few more battles and the prize will be yours. Hold fast to the Lord, if so. Or maybe your story already ended and you don't like what was on the other side of the finish line or who you became and you think there's no second chance. Surprise! Maybe you're in a trilogy, and part 2 or 3 or 73 is about to begin. Because wherever we are in our story, at any moment, God can change the narrative, if we invite him into it. He is the master author after all. Because here's the spoiler. We already know the ending of our story. The ending of our story is always in Jesus, in his resurrection. Everything works out because of that. This is the promise that kept Paul and Silas hopeful even in prison. 
For us, no matter what happens in our stories, we can anchor ourselves in the hope that even if our circumstances aren't necessarily changed, the outcome of our story is forever changed. We get eternal life in heaven. Now, there's a part of the three-act story that I didn't mention earlier. It's called the dark night of the soul. And it happens towards the end of Act 2, after the midpoint, and before the final conflict and resolution. This is the part of the story where the hero is about to give up. Things are too difficult. All hope is lost. They are not going to make it. Marlon and Dory are swallowed by a whale, and Marlon gives up hope of ever finding his son Nemo in. Frodo collapses at the foot of Mount Doom and can't carry the ring up to the fires to destroy it. Joseph is thrown into prison after denying the advances of Potiphar's wife. Paul and Silas are also in jail, bound and shackled for who knows how long, for obeying the Lord. There is always a dark night of the soul. A time in our lives when we think we can go on no more. And this is what I've come here to say today. My whole time here has been leading up to this moment. Everything I've shared about story and scripture boils down to this denouement. And it is the one thing that I want you to walk away with today, if nothing else. There is always hope. Even when you can't feel it. Even when the darkness is closing in on you and you think there is no way out with Christ, there is always hope. If we look at the passage again, Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns to God. They didn't wallow. They turned to God and then he made a way. This is what we need to do when we're in the dark night of the soul. Don't lose heart. Don't forget that God is there. Reach out to him. You might not have the strength to sing or to pray like Paul and Silas did all night, but it can be as simple as, Lord, help me. I need you. I've whispered this prayer countless times over my life. Whatever you do, reach out for him. Open that Bible. Pray. Acknowledge his presence. Invite him in and let him move you one step forward at a time. I've been in the dark night of the soul far more times than I would ever hope anyone has to experience. And sometimes that portion of my story has seemed to drag on for far too long in some bizarre extended director's cut but it always ends. The dawn always rises. Our stories never end in the desperate, desolate place. With God, our stories always end in hope and restoration. And I hope we can notice the denouement of what happened because of Paul and Silas's imprisonment. A whole family came to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that had implications for hundreds and thousands of people who would never have otherwise been reached by Paul and Silas in their preaching, but now we're able to because of this moment. Whatever the dark night of the soul we are in, God can take whatever darkness has beset us, whether circumstantial or of our own doing, and use it for good. The chains and jail doors break open for Paul and Silas, and people come to know Jesus who otherwise would not have. Joseph is released from prison, put in charge of Egypt, and saves his family and the whole nation. Marlon is reunited with Nemo, both forever changed 
and more loving to each other. Sam can't carry the ring for Frodo, but he can carry Frodo, and together they reach the fires of Mount Doom, saving the whole of Middle-earth. I don't know when your dark night of the soul will end. Maybe it's gonna happen with one more step. Or maybe your act three will be quite lengthy. But either way, the end is worth it. No matter how despairing the dark night of our soul becomes, we must remember that even if we are hard pressed on every side, we are not crushed. Even if we are perplexed, we are not in despair. Even if we are persecuted, we are not forsaken. Even if we are struck down, we are not destroyed. This is why we have the Bible. This is why we study the scriptures and the accounts of the historical figures to give us hope, to spur us on to the end of our own story. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Or, like Sam says to Frodo at the end of the Two Towers, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk and those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. So hold on to something. Hold on to Christ and the dawn will rise. To end our time together, I've asked the band to play a song from one of the most underrated Disney movies, Hercules. I picked this song, Go the Distance, because, well, it's epic, but also because I think the lyrics tie perfectly into what we've explored today. My hope is that we can take this song and think about how every trial and struggle we face here on Earth will be worth the while, especially when we find a hero's welcome waiting in the arms of Jesus. We can run this race with endurance. We can go the distance. But just before we do that, this is the time in our service where we have our time of giving. So go ahead and click that give button. It's quick, it's safe, and it's easy. And thank you for continuing to be so faithful in your tithes and offerings during this time and always. With that, Thank you for letting me share with you today. I hope you are encouraged even in some small way. Now it's time to sit back and enjoy this closing song. And let me tell you, it is quite the treat.
have a far off place where a hero's welcome would be waiting for me where the crowds would cheer when they see my face and a voice keeps saying this is where I'm meant to be I'll be there someday I can go the distance I will find my way If I can be strong I know every mile Would be worth my while When I go the distance I'll be
Oh, <laughs> that is the Lord's will that we would be able to go the distance. And I think about that, not just in the long arc of life, but also in the unique season that we're finding ourselves in right now. Oh, it's a challenging one, no question about it. I'm looking forward to the transitions that are ahead. I know there's a lot of stuff that can happen along the way, but I'm remaining confident. And I'm so thankful that we can make this journey together. Yes, and on top of that, we have the Lord. That means that we can not only, remember, go through this, we can grow through this. Let's stick close to his words. Let his words dwell in us. Show us the path, guide us. You know, you are so loved. You are so greatly loved and God is so good. <laughs> Remember, we talk about this, so good, so God. Let us, so good and so God. And in my other prayer, as we go our separate ways into this day and into the rest of this week, is that the Lord would keep you, and I really mean this, in your spirit, in your soul, that is in your mind, in our minds, our thoughts, yes, and in our body. And in fact, Lord, if there's any of us who need healing in our body or in our minds or in our spirit, we welcome you in even now. Oh, dearly loved, greatly loved, that's you. Till we meet again, blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace.